Good morning again. We are, are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 John. We are in 1 John chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verse 5 all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Greg is up, and you'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5 this morning. Starting in verse 5, we read John writing to us, This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The time I studied this morning is the sin problem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people to be able to open up your word and to know, Lord God, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts today. We pray, Lord, that we would have receptive ears to hear what you have to say to each one of us personally, Lord, as a, as a church corporately. We also pray, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to uh, surrender their life to you, to, to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. We pray that you touch their life today, Lord, to speak to their heart especially, that they come to know you as their Lord and Savior. So we thank you for this time. We ask that you continue to bless it, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story I found about a Sunday school teacher who had just finished her lesson, and, and she wanted to make sure the kids understood her point. So she said, can anyone tell me what you must do before you can have your sins forgiven? There's a short silence when finally a little boy in the back of the room spoke up and said, sin. (laughs) Makes sense, right? (laughs) It was reported that Pastor D.L. Moody, the Chicago evangelist, was a guest speaker at another church. And he was warned by the pastor of that church by saying, I have to tell you about this congregation. Some of them have a habit of getting up and leaving before the service is over. While Dwight L. Moody began his message with this, he says, I want to speak to two classes of people today, sinners and saints. First of all, let me address my words to the sinners. And he spoke and finally said, now that I'm done with all that, all of the sinners can get up and leave. No one got up and left. They all stayed for the entire message. Why? Because no one wanted to admit they're a sinner. In fact, no one wants to use that word sin or, or sinner. It's an ugly word. It's a word some would consider offensive. And we just don't, don't want to deal with it. But let me tell you, eight times in this section of Scripture that I just read, we see the word sin or sins. Not a slip up, not a boo-boo, not a, a no-no, not a twist of nature, not a fluke. He uses a biblical word 
sin. It's a Greek word, hemarardias. It's used 174 times in the New Testament. It means to miss the mark. It means to wander off the path of uprightness. See, here is God's mark. Here is God's standard. And we've missed it. And we've wandered off the path that God has set. Now, we looked at last time the importance of fellowship. Fellowship with each other. Fellowship with God. But one common denominator that brings us all together to have this fellowship is the fact that we worship what? A Savior. A Savior. He saved us from our sins. And if we can't get together on that, that basis, then we have no basis for our fellowship at all. It's been said there are two kinds of people in the world, only two kinds, not black or white, rich or poor, but those either dead in sin or dead to sin. So John here brings up this idea of sin and sins and forgiveness throughout this chapter. Now, I have to tell you that in many churches across the nation, they're denying the validity of sin. Because why? It's, it's offensive. There are churches that have made it their goal to take out any words in, in songs or special readings that, that may have had the word sin in it or sinners, you know, or words like, oh, the blood of the lamb or shedding of the blood. It would be offensive to say nothing but the blood of Jesus. So let's just not mention any of that because it, it might turn people away because sin is offensive. Instead, let's just explain sin away by psychological or sociological conditions. In fact, Mega Church Pastor Joel Osteen has said, people say I don't talk about sin, but I do talk about how we live our life and about making good choices. Well, Joel, <laughs> and I can say to you this morning that if the word sin offends you, or sinner, if the words of blood of Jesus Christ offends you, then prepare to be offended this morning, all right? Because we're going to talk about it. We're going to look at a lot of verses that point it out to us. So get your pens ready. Write them down. Look them up later because we're not going to avoid it. Because the worst thing ever to hit this planet that touches every human being and is absolutely fatal and can separate us forever from God is this thing called sin and it's a problem. So the worst thing we can do is not talk about it. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, the reality of sin. Number two, the recognition of sin. And number three, the remedy of sin. Number one, the reality of sin. You know, in every form of life, it has its, its enemies. You know, insects watch out for hungry birds. Hungry birds have to watch out for hungry cats. And even as humans, you know, we, we have to dodge cars every now and then. We have to fight off germs. And Well, our spiritual life in the same way has... An enemy, a real enemy, and this enemy is sin. But almost every biblical writer, Old and New Testament alike, recognizes the tendency and the bent that we have towards sin. I think of King Solomon back when he built the temple and he was dedicating it in his prayer. He thanked God for the building of the structure, but he looked out into Israel's history knowing that in the future one day they would turn from God. And he said this in his prayer in 1 Kings eight forty six. When they sin against you, because there is no one that does not sin. So he knew it was going to happen. When, not if. The same uh, author, King Solomon, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7, verse 20, when he says, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. He knows. You know, the same puzzle, uh, problem puzzled Job, even though he suffered physically, he saw the spiritual tendencies that we all have Towards sin and towards evil, he said this in Job 25, 4. How then can man be righteous before God, or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? 
David, I mean, a man after God's own heart, he wrote this in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Let's go into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, chapter uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, said this, that before we came to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He said, and, he, and you who made a life who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and catch this, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. See, all those texts that I just quoted are descriptions of the natural man, of the natural woman. By nature, the Bible says, are the children of wrath. So if you really were to picture man apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, it would be a clenched fist raised against a living God and rebellion against God. Why? Because we are sinners by nature. It's what we do. You know, uh, for example, when you hear a dog barking, you don't say, well, that's a dog because it barks. No. <laughs> you know, we say it barks because why? it's a dog. It's the nature of the animal itself to produce those sounds. Man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because it's in his nature to be sinful. Passed down all the way from Adam and Eve, from generation after generation. In fact, Paul recognizes that in Romans 5.12 when he says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Vance Havner, who was once the chaplain of the United States Senate in one of his speeches to the Senate, he said this, I never say that civilization is going to the dogs, for I still have some respect for dogs. Mankind without the grace of God is doing things beneath the dignity of the best of the field. I mean, this, this depravity of man is what we're talking about. The depravity of man enables every one of us to have the potential to be really, really wicked. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is, you know, but this depravity in us enables every one of us to become an, an Adolf Hitler, a, a Jeffrey Dahmer, a, a Charles Manson. If it, you know, it wasn't as if these guys were just kind of fluke weirdos, products of their environments. It was that sin nature that was within them that blossomed to its max. See, anyone who's completely honest with themselves. I mean, all we've got to do is look at this past week that we've had. Look at the news and we see the unrest in North Carolina. We see the, the tragedy of the mall shooting in Washington State where five people, four, four women and one man, were, were shot to death. We see the, the, the possibility of the chemical warpage, weapons used in Iraq. Uh, I, I mean, you see the reality of sin. You see the depravity of man. All that in just one week. But you see, all of us have the tendencies and abilities to commit great atrocities. I mean, how can you, else can you explain the atrocities that take place day after day, month after month that we see going on in the world? It's because of that, that sin nature. Again, going back to the Apostle Paul, who was once you know, this great Jewish rabbi, following the law according to him perfectly, said this after coming to Christ in Romans 3.23, for all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Mark that. Everyone has sinned, has hemorrhitis. Everyone has missed the mark. We've fallen short. Now, Newport Beach, 
California. It's where I used to spend my summers growing up as a kid. And they have a Newport Pier, and, and it's pretty cool. At the end of the pier, you know, from the end of the pier, there's an island 26 miles away called Catalina Island. Now, let's say you and I want to, to get to Catalina Island, and we want to do it by jumping from that pier to the island. Now, let's say some of you are really, really good jumpers. You know, you maybe get a really good running start. Man, you can go 10, 15, 20 feet out there. Man, that's good. Man, you, you know, some of us, we can go 5 feet out, 6 feet out. Maybe go even 30 feet out. Maybe some of us, maybe some, some more, though it may have been fun, we've all missed the mark. We can't make it to Catalina Island. We fall short of the island. Now, some have done better and some worse, but we've all missed. Some of you are better sinners. Some of you are worse sinners, but all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Here, if you will, is a picture of the way God views humanity, a snapshot of humanity apart from Christ. Romans 3, verse 10 through 17, Paul writes this. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Man, that's the picture. That's the snapshot of humanity. The reality of sin and the sin nature in all of us. That's why we need a new nature. That's why we needed to be born again. And yet here in 1 John, John's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians about the danger of sin in their lives. Now, the fact that Christians sin bothers some people, especially new, new Christians. They forget that, that you know, upon receiving this new nature, that, that it doesn't eliminate the old nature that they were born with. That that old nature fights with the new nature which we receive when we're born again. No amount of self-discipline, no set of man-made rules and regulations can control that old nature. Only the Spirit of God can enable us to, to put to death that old man, that old nature. You see, sinning saints are not mentioned in the Bible to discourage us, but to warn us. I, I read a story of uh, one... Uh, church member that said, why do you keep preaching to us Christians about sin to the pastor? After all, sin in the life of a Christian is different from sin in the life of an unsaved person. Yes, replied the pastor, it's different. It's much, much worse. And it's true. Heard another story about a young boy that came to an old preacher that said, Reverend, when am I going to cease to be tempted by sin? And the wise old man said, son, I wouldn't trust myself until I've been dead for three days. Here's the problem with sin in your life as a Christian. When you yield to your old sin nature, when you commit acts or an act of sin, there's an interruption with your fellowship with God. You still have a relationship with God, but you cannot experience the fellowship with God. Again, you have the relationship with God, but you cannot experience the fellowship with God. For example, a backslidden husband who is walking in spiritual darkness out of fellowship with God, can never enjoy full fellowship with his Christian wife who is walking in the light. See, in a superficial way, the couple can, can have companionship, but true spiritual fellowship is impossible. They're on two different planes. And this is what John is, is showing us here. In fact, that's why John explains that verse 5. Look at verse 5. 
This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we remember we just looked at the last time together, John speaking about how he's seen, how he heard, how he touched, how he was with Jesus. He was there. And he says, and this is what I declare to you, what he said. And he's saying here his message. He says, I, I got the message and here's the message. God is holy and God is just. And in him, in Jesus, there is no sin at all. In him, there is no darkness at all. See, John wants us to see how bright our Savior is in order to show us how dark our sin is. And he begins by, by saying God is light in verse 5. Now, when you think about light, light does a number of things. It brings illumination so men can see. When someone turns on the light, it brings anger because you were asleep and it was dark in your room. Light brings warmth so men can survive and crops can grow. Light exposes the dirt so a man can clean it up. Now, we also know that the, 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 this, in this world, the quality of light varies. We say it's light out when it's foggy outside. We say it's light out when it's overcast outside, uh, when the clouds are blocking the sun. Uh, we even say it's light out when it's raining or, or, or overcast. There might be a little darkness mixed in with the light. You know, a couple lamps in your home, in my home, it has a couple of light bulbs in there. One goes out, there's still one that's lit. It's, it's not as bright as it should because there's a little bit of darkness in there, a degree of darkness. But you see, God's light, God's light contains no darkness at all. Of course, again, the darkness we're talking about is the darkness of sin. There's no sin in God. No failures in God. There's no limitations in God. Jesus Christ never sinned. Never once sinned. Never once gave in to temptation. See, God's light is so brilliant that, that talking about the future eternal state in Revelation 21-23, it says concerning Jesus Christ, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So we're, we're in heaven, man, that new heaven. Jesus is going to shine. He, the, the light of Jesus is going to go forth. Jesus put it this way in John eight twelve: I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. So again, John is presenting the brightness of Christ to show us the reality and the darkness of our sin. But here's the problem. Christians can close their eyes to the, to, the, to the reality of sin. You know, it's kind of like when you go into a dark room and there's no lights on and you close your eyes so you can get your eyes adjusted to the darkness. Christians can do the same thing. They close their eyes to the reality of sin in order to adjust to the darkness. But look what, what John says. Look at, this, at, at verse 6. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Now remember, John is coming against the false teachings of the Gnostics that basically said it doesn't matter how you live your life because all flesh is evil. See, Gnosticism believed, simplified, believed the spirit alone was good, matter was essentially evil. Now they're thinking about matter being evil also affected their ethical approach to life. But there are two two divisions in the camp, two camps. One camp suggested if our bodies were evil, then we need to practice a rigid asceticism, that is self-denial, a star beat and deny the body. The other camp took the opposite view. Hey, if our bodies were evil, then we can do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. So they practiced a loose life of antinomianism, which is living apart from the law. Because if the body's evil, then, you know, what difference does it make? I mean, just live it up, live however you want. It doesn't matter. Well, obviously, the latter teaching had come into the church, and that's why John says what he says. Now, remember, 
son's 90, maybe 100 years old. He's kind of had enough of this foolishness going on. So he says so in verse 6. He says, if you say you walk in light and you have no fellowship with God, but you walk in darkness, then John says, you're a liar. You're a liar. I love it. Preach it, John. Amen. You see, when we are saved, First Peter 2, 9 tells us that God called us out of darkness in and into his light. You are then in the light. That describes your position as God sees you. But your practice is different than your position. John is describing a Christian, someone whose position is in Christ in the light, but who does not practice the truth. God wants to dwell with us. And he wants our bodies to be used for holiness. He wants my mind to be holy. He wants my hands to be holy, my feet to walk in holiness, my mouth to speak those things that are holy. And John is saying, if you've been delivered from darkness, but you're still walking in that darkness, you, you're not and you cannot experience the true fellowship of Jesus Christ. And you're just living a lie. Again, you can have a relationship with Jesus, but John says you're, you're a liar if you say you have fellowship with Jesus. But... Good news, look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Is that not a great verse? When you cleanse something, you know, you remove the stain. In this case, the precious and powerful blood of Jesus shed at Calvary removes any stain of sin. But there's more, as the late night infomercials will say. The Bible uh, commentators point out that the word for cleanses is a continuous cleansing. How can something stay continuously clean? Well, by avoiding becoming stained again after you get the stain out. You know, if you spill spaghetti sauce on your nice white shirt, but you manage to get that stain out, next time you eat spaghetti, aren't you going to be really, really careful? I mean, you put a whole bib on, okay, I can eat my spaghetti. See, the strongest deterrent against sin is to understand that all sin is against God. All sin is against God. And since we're uh, in the washing mode, you might say the strongest detergent against sin is to understand that all sin is against God. See, and we are, 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 we are turned away from sin because of our desires. We, rather, we turn away from sin because of our desire to please God. That's why we turn away from sin. Not because it's bad though it is. Not because, you know, it's not good for you. Because it offends God. You see, our response to temptation is our barometer of our love for God. You say, oh God, I love you so much. Do you? Well, then don't give in to sin. And that's what the Bible teaches. Psalm ninety-seven, ten: You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the soul of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. God hates sin. And as his followers, we need to hate it as well. In fact, we're told in Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Because when we open our eyes and look squarely at our sin, acknowledging for what it is, it's then that, that we realize what it took to get that stain, that sin removed from you, removed from me. That's why you're going to want to, to avoid any further stain from that same sin. The fact is that God said sin is so bad that I've got to send my son to spill his blood to cleanse the sins of the world shows us what God thinks of sin. Not a little mistake, not a little boo-boo, big enough to separate us from God. That's why Jesus has come to cleanse us of our sins, because it's so exceedingly sinful. 
I know that this may sound harsh, folks, but, but listen, to soften sin will devalue the blood that was shed to save you from it. Let me say that again. To soften sin will devalue the blood that was shed to save you from it. So we see the reality of our sin. Number two, our second point, the recognition of sin. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here John describes a Christian who not only doesn't recognize sin in his or her life, but he, they're, they're denying it. Now it's kind of hard to believe, but there are people who actually believe that you can become sinless in this life. That you can actually live a life of sinless perfection. Now I've not met a single one of these people, okay? But there are people that, that think you can. Listen, you can't, it won't, it's not going to happen. But people will say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't First John chapter 3, verse 9 say, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for a seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God? What John is saying is simply this. If you're truly a Christian, you cannot continually, habitually practice sin. You can't. You still sin, but it's not the habit of your life. If it is, then you probably aren't truly born again, and the truth is not in you. But I look at the Apostle Paul toward the end of his life and what he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul considered himself chief, uh, chief sinner. But he wasn't habitually, continually practicing sin. In fact, he was sinning less and less and less. But though he was sinning less, he wasn't sinless. He just came to a greater awareness of the deceitfulness of that indwelling sin. He didn't deny his sin. doesn't do us any good to deny sin. You know, John says here, you're deceiving yourself if you deny your sin. It's not like we can fool God. <laughs> oh, sin? Me? No. I didn't do that, God. No, no way. You know, you didn't see that. Really. Psalm 69.5 Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Hebrews 4.13 All things are naked and open to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. Do you really think that God doesn't know what you're doing if you're doing something behind a closed door? Or if you're doing something when the lights are out? Lord can see. The Lord can hear everything. He's there in every conversation you have. Nothing escapes His sight. Nothing is said that He does not hear. So if you sin, again, acknowledge it and appropriate God's provision for it. God's provision, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great verse. The word confess means to agree. It means to agree with God about your sin. It means to, to recognize that we've sinned against the holy God. Now, if you refuse to acknowledge our sin, you're, you're disagreeing with God. And when you do that, again, you can't experience a fellowship with God you, you know, because you're in disagreement with God. But if you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I hear that, we hear that, that verse quoted a lot. And I love to quote the verse. You've heard me quote it a lot. Why? Because we need to hear it so much. I think every Christian should have it memorized. 1 John 1, 9. And it ought to be practiced by every Christian. See, if you're here this morning and you know that you have a wrong attitude that is sinful... If you're here this morning and you know that you're, you're conscious of, of, of some sinful action... If you're here this morning and you know that you've used some sinful words or sinful behavior or conduct, you still have a relationship with God, but you're not in fellowship with Him. So you need to what? Confess your sin to God. But, here's a big but, but know that He has forgiven you through the cross. Because He's faithful. 
and because he's just to forgive us our sins, sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, how we need the grace of God to grant us repentance from sin and confession of sin and forsaking of sin and turning from sin, that we might stay in fellowship with Him, that we might walk in the light as He is in the light, that we can have the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us continually. But see, there's a danger in not recognizing the sin in our lives. And John tells us that. Look at verse 10. He says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. And you think, how can someone say they've not sinned? How can anyone say they've not sinned? It seems to me the only way possible is if we redefine the things that God calls sin. In other words, if God calls something sin, but we insist on calling it something else, someone's lying. And it ain't God. <laughs> but we're calling Him a liar whenever we redefine what He calls sin. Whenever we define what God calls sin, we're calling God a liar. For an example, if God calls drunkenness a sin, but we call it a disease of alcoholism, we're calling God a liar. If God calls homosexuality a sin, but we call it sexual preference, we are calling God a liar. Now the problem is that when you do that, you redefine sin. You're making excuses for it. And when we excuse sin because of the pressure of circumstances, maybe because of the pressure to be tolerant in this culture we're living in, or because we're just tired, whatever the reason we often blame others for our reactions. John says when we do that, when we excuse sin, we call God a liar. We need to see sin as God sees it. See, God's standards are absolute. They don't change. God's word is the same yesterday, today, and his standards of morality has not changed, even if this world standard does. Even though our culture is becoming increasingly more immoral, God has made not one exception to sin. Leonard Ravenhill, and I like, he was a, a powerful guy, that, a preacher that, that I think passed away in the 80s. He said this, he once said this, there's one thing we need above everything else. It's something we don't talk about these days. We need a mighty avalanche of conviction of sin. He said this, there's no other way for America to be saved unless we have a Holy Ghost revival that makes men hate sin and loathe sin and turn from sin and repent from sin. And then one more quote from him that I liked is a little bit longer. He says, I wish in America that we were as concerned about separation from church and sin as we are about separation between church and state. Church and sin, it's a monstrous problem. Young people come to our churches and what are they seeing? I went to a church long ago. They got 30 acres. So what are their plans with it? They want their own football field and tennis courts. Dear God, do children go to church to learn to play tennis? God help the preachers. Why can't we get them spiritual so they want prayer and revelation and the word of the living God? The young people come inside the church, but there's no glory. I'd rather have 10 people that want God than 10,000 people who want to play church. I want to see the glory of God come so our young people don't have to be told to go to church, but when they just long to get to the sanctuary of God. End quote. To see their sin, to see their need to repent, and to see them turn to Christ. Now this brings us to our final point, the reality of sin, the recognition of sin. Number three, the remedy of sin. Yes, when we sin, we, we need to recognize we've sinned. We need to confess it and appropriate God's forgiveness. Christians do sin. But this does not mean you, you need to be saved all over again. Okay? The remedy of sin is our Savior. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 now. He says, My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love he says, my little children. He knows he's been tough. 
He knows he's been rough. And he's going, okay, you know, listen, my little children, I care for you. I love you guys, okay? And you need to hear this. If you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That word advocate used to be applied to lawyers. The word John uses here is the very same word that Jesus used when he was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It means literally one called alongside or one who pleads a case. See, when a man was summoned to court, he took an advocate, a lawyer with him to stand at his side to plead his case. Jesus finished his work on earth, the work of giving his life as a sacrifice for sin. Today he has an unfinished work in heaven. He represents us before God's throne. And our high priest, Jesus, sympathizes with our weaknesses and our temptations and gives us grace. As our advocate, he helps us when we sin, when we confess our sins to God because of Christ's advocacy, God forgives us. Now, does this give us a license to sin? Of course not. But again, the Christian who truly understands God's provision for a life of holiness does not want to deliberately disobey God. But when we do sin, when we blow it, we know for sure that every sin that we've ever committed has already been taken care of at the cross. That is great news for us here this morning, folks. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgotten. They're completely washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. You and I, we've been forgiven of all our sins if you're a born-again Christian this morning. Not just the past sins, but your current struggles, as well as the future things that we haven't even done yet that aren't right. It's all washed away. It's out of His sight. I love Isaiah 1, verse 18. that says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. You know, when you start going east, you're going to keep going east. You're never going to start going west. That's how far God has put our sins from us. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He doesn't even remember uh, my past failures, my present struggles. They've all been put out of his memory. It's as if I go before the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I messed up again. I missed the mark again. And the Lord's saying, What do you mean again? What do you mean again? You know, I don't remember you blowing it before. See, God chooses. It doesn't mean that God has a lapse of memory. He chooses to forget our sins. Past, present, and future. Why? Because the power of the blood that was shed for my sin uh, through God's Son upon the cross of Calvary. So powerful that God has allowed it to wash my sin away from His memory. Isn't that great news? So I'm convinced that the greatest need of man is forgiveness. I, I think that they need to know that God is light, that God is holy, and man is sinful. But more than anything, they, they need to know that if you confess your sins, that you know, and turn to God, God will forgive you and give you them peace and joy and life and, 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 and eternal life. See, I believe that people know that they have messed up. I believe that people know that they've fallen short. They know they've blown a battery. That's why man's greatest need is forgiveness. Man's greatest need uh, in forgiving man was God's greatest deed. Yeah, Speaking the world into existence was great. Forming man out of the dust of the ground was, was a great deed. Creating unique creatures and the animals that we have on this earth is amazing. But the greatest thing that God did is forgiven man. Because to forgive man, it cost him his, his blood. To forgive man, God became a man, and this man was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died in my place and your place. Paul says it so well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
So to bring this all together, if we want true fellowship with God, we need to recognize as long as we are here on this earth, we're still going to have that sinful nature and we're still going to continue to sin. We're never attain sinlessness, but, but as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, we should sin less. And, and we know that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So powerful was the work that Jesus did that day on the cross that it not only washed away our sin, but look at verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus died for our sins to set us free from the power and chains of sin, but not only us, for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, it's all about God's grace. God's grace. I've shared this many years ago, but I love this picture. It's a story that I want to share with you, and then we're going to close after this. But, but it's called Grace the Principles Way. And maybe you've heard it before, but man, it just it hits me every time I read it. It goes like this. The boy stood with back arched, head cocked back, and hands clenched defiantly. Go ahead, give it to me. The principal looked down at the young rebel. How many times have you been here? Well, the child sneered rebelliously. Apparently not enough. The principal gave the boy a strange look. And you have been punished each time, have you not? Yeah, I've been punished, if that's what you want to call it. He threw out his small chest. Go ahead. I can take whatever you dish out. I always have. And no thought of punishment enters your head the time you decide to break the rules, does it? Nope. I do whatever I want to. Ain't nothing you people are going to do to stop me either. Well, the principal looked over at the teacher who stood nearby. What did he do this time? Fighting. He took little Tommy and shoved his face into the sandbox. The principal turned to look at the little boy. Why? What did Tommy do to you? Nothing. I didn't like the way he was looking at me, just like I don't like the way you're looking at me either. And if I thought I could do it, I'd shove your face into something too. Well, the teacher standing by started to... The stiffened and started to rise, but a quick look from the principal stopped him. And he contemplated the child for a moment and then said quietly, Today, my young student, is a day you're going to learn about grace. Grace? Isn't that what you old people say before you sit down to eat? I don't need none of your stinking grace. Oh, but you do. The principal studied the young man's face and whispered, Oh, yes, you truly do. The boy continued to glare as the principal continued, Grace, in its short definition, is unmerited favor. You cannot earn it. It is a gift and is always freely given. It means that you will not be getting what you so richly deserve. The boy looked puzzled. You're not going to whip me? You're just going to let me walk? Well, the principal looked down at the unyielding child. Yes, I'm going to let you walk. The boy studied the face of the principal. No punishment at all. Even though I socked Tommy and shoved his face into the sandbox. Oh, there has to be a punishment. What you did was wrong, and there are always consequences to our actions. There will be a punishment. Grace is not an excuse for doing wrong. I knew it sneered the boy as he held out his hands. Let's get on with it. Well, the principal nodded towards the teacher. Bring me the belt. The teacher presented the belt to the principal, who carefully folded it in two and handed it back to the teacher. He looked at the child and said, I want you to count the blows. He slid out from behind his desk and walked over to stand directly in front of the young man. He gently reached out and folded the child's outstretched expectant hands together and turned to face the teacher with his own hands outstretched. One quiet word came from his mouth. Begin. The belt whipped down on the outstretched hands of the principal. 
Crack! The young man jumped ten feet in the air. Shock registered across his face. One, he whispered. Crack! Two. Big tears welled up in his eyes of the rebel. Okay, stop. That's enough. Stop. Crack! Came the belt down on the calloused hands of the principal. Crack! The child flinched with each blow. Tears beginning to stream down his face. Crack! Crack! No, please, the former rebel begged. Stop, I did it. I'm the one who deserves it. Stop, please, stop. Still the blows came. Crack, crack, one after another. Finally it was over. The principal stood with great sweat glistening across his forehead, beats trickling down his face. Slowly he knelt down. He studied the young man for a second and then his swollen hands reached out to cradle the face of the weeping child and said, Grace, Grace. See, it all comes down to choice. Do you want your sin forgiven? Do you want to be born again today? Listen, God loves you. He, he died for you. He wants to live in you. Will you allow Him to? If you say, I don't care that God loves me. I don't care that Jesus died for me. I don't want His Spirit living within me. You know what? That's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only sin that cannot be forgiven of you. Every other sin, your sin, my sin, the world's sin, has been paid for at the cross. You can have forgiveness. But you've got to come to Him this morning and realize your sin has separated you from God. Re- recognize that you've sinned and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You for these words, Lord. Though they are heavy words and though they are hard to hear, Lord, they're in Your Word for a purpose to touch our hearts. And Lord, we want to thank You first and foremost for the grace that You've given to us. We want to thank You for the cross. Lord, that you took upon yourself the beatings, the whippings, the pulling of your beard from your face, the crown of thorns, the nails in your hands, the nail in your feet. But above all of that, you took upon my sin, our sin upon yourself. Though we deserve, we deserve that punishment. You took it upon us so that we can have that forgiveness of sins, the cleansing, that we can have that relationship with our God, but not only that, our fellowship with God as well. Thank you, Jesus, for bridging the gap between sinful man and our holy God. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that has not received the forgiveness of their sin, they're not born again this morning, I pray that they would not leave here without making that commitment to you this morning. That they would turn from their sin and turn towards you. And for us, Lord, that our believers... We thank you that we have an advocate with our Father, your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to recognize, Lord, that when we sin, that that the forgiveness is available to us immediately because of the cross. Help us to to recognize, Lord, that, that, that we live in a fallen world, Lord, but we need to live in the light as you are in the light, Jesus. So help us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit this coming week to walk in the light, to stay away from the darkness, Lord, and to glorify you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand.